Could there be any questions left? Did everybody hear the question? Okay, the question was about stream entry, what it means to enter the stream, how one makes a choice or can make a choice between entering the stream leading to Nibbana, leading to enlightenment, or refraining from that and choosing to become a bodhisattva which is a being uh, aspiring to, to Buddhahood. But, okay, that's... <coughs> that's definitely a whole Dharma talk. <coughs> With respect to both sides of those questions, please keep in mind that even within the Theravada tradition, as well as you know, other of the Buddhist traditions, uh, there are somewhat different understandings of those questions. Uh, so I'll just try to give sort of a brief summary. In terms of entering the stream, The experience uh, is the first, back up a minute. There are two ways that the mind kind of experiences or touches or tastes Nibbana or the unconditioned. And these two aspects are called the path moment and the fruition moment. And it's in these moments of consciousness, they're called super-mundane consciousness, because <clears throat> it takes as its object not a mundane, something of the, of the conditioned realm, but it takes as the object the unconditioned. Right? So it's called the super-mundane. The first moment, the path moment, has the power <clears throat> to uproot certain defilements in the mind. And so at each of the four stages of enlightenment, stream entry, once-returner, non-returner, arhant, each of those stages, there is a path moment which uproots the defilements appropriate to that stage, and then what is called the fruition moment, (coughs) which is the experience of Nibbana, or the unconditioned, as the fruit of the path, nothing further is uprooted, and it's just the experience of that peace. The fruition at each stage can be experienced again and again. The path moment happens only once for each stage. Okay, so that's, I don't know whether anybody has spoken about this, but that's the basic uh, model. 
In one classical understanding, this path and fruition moment is experienced as a cessation of consciousness, a cessation of awareness. Now there are many or several different reasons why cessation can happen. Not all of them are Nibbana or the unconditioned. So people can have an experience, a cessation experience, and it could be because there's an excess of calm or an excess of rapture or an excess of sloth. It's like there's kind of a break. It's the experience of a break in the flow of consciousness. So obviously none of those are the super mundane. But there is a particular experience of the cessation of the flow of consciousness, which is the opening, I mentioned uh, in the talk last week, you could call it the zero center. Right? Yeah, the experience of zero. An image which might help you know, just convey the sense of it and the peace of it. You know, have you had the experience of being in a room and then all of a sudden the noise, the hum of the refrigerator stops and you have, you know, there's that moment, there's a peace and until it stopped, we mostly were unconscious that even that it was even going. You know, it was just so much part of the background. And yet in the moment of stopping, we realize, you could say, the burdensomeness, you know, of the hum. So you could think of this cessation moment as the stopping of the refrigerator hum. You know, it's humming, 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 endlessly, and then... And then there's the peace. So that's one way of understanding it. In terms of the choice between the bodhisattva path and this path leading to arhanship, Within, within the Theravada tradition, if one has the aspiration to become a Buddha, which, <clears throat> again, according to these teachings, the liberation of mind is the same but the, as an Arhant, the freedom is the same, but the powers of mind vary tr- greatly, which is why the, the Buddha has... Uh, these vast powers of compassion and wisdom and skillful means, which is why uh, <clears throat> can be of help to so many beings. So one can, t- can make the aspiration to become a Buddha. You know, so, some people have that. 
within this tradition, and again, different traditions have a different take on this, this is quite a long path, right, over, you know, countless lifetimes of perfecting the paramis, the, the perfections, uh, you know, until they ripen into the potential or the, the realization of Buddhahood. Within these teachings, if one has, in a committed way, taken this bodhisattva vow, then it's said one goes up to the door, the entrance of stream entry, you know, that experience of the unconditioned, but doesn't enter. Because it's said that once one enters, then one is destined within a certain limited period of time to become an arhant. So in this, in this way of understanding, if you take the bodhisattva vow, you, you get up to the very highest stages of insight and then stay in that space as all of the paramis uh, are perfected. Um. Other traditions in the Tibetan tradition, for example, they have a different notion of what happens. And I don't exactly know uh, all, the, all the, the various stages within that system, uh, but it's not a question of... Uh, postponing you know the experience of freedom that one has that one has these various experiences of uh, emptiness or the unconditioned all along the way there's one very well-known teacher in the Thai tradition Ajahn Man and he was kind of the father of the Thai forest tradition and considered an arhant. You know, he was... And there's a very... You might want to read... There's a, there's a book called uh, The Biography of Ajahn Man, written by one of his disciples, who was himself considered an arhant. Ajahn Man was a pretty far-out guy and very... He had a very different view of all this. And he talked in this biography of him he talked of meeting the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and I'm not sure of this exactly because I read it some time ago, so don't take this as authoritative. This is just a recollection, but you would want to kind of check this out for yourself, you know, if you read the book. But as I recall, he had a very different take on the relationship of arhants and Buddhas. And, you know, that even after full enlightenment, one could, one could go on and become a Buddha. He, d- he didn't have the notion that arhants 
don't come back. So again, this is not the usual interpretation. However, this was a, one of the great enlightened beings of Thailand. So it's just to say there are a lot of uh, different takes on it. When I come in and bow to the Buddha, and this is kind of my bodhicitta aspiration, given my understanding that I don't really know how all this happens. You know, I just know what the different teachings say or the different traditions say. And so there's, there's a big question, well, who knows how it happens? So when I... I've tried to articulate my highest aspiration. I come in and I have the wish or aspiration, may my heart be purified of all defilements for the welfare and benefit and liberation of all beings. Because that, that for me, captures the essence of my aspiration, free of the metaphysics. I don't quite know how it's going to all happen. But that's the aspiration, and then however it unfolds, it'll unfold. I'll just go back. (coughs) One other little piece... What's uprooted at the first stage of enlightenment, the defilements that are uprooted, is this personality view of self, right? the, the, the idea of self. It's not that self-thoughts still don't arise, because those patterns are there, but they themselves are understood as being selfless. You know, and so that core root belief in the sense of I or self or mine, that's uprooted, doubt is uprooted. Belief that rites or rituals can somehow affect liberation. You know, be the so that's the check. You know, if, if one has an experience of some kind and one thinks, well, you know, maybe that really was one of these transforming moments, then it's check have those defilements been uprooted or not. The Buddha also, in different suttas, gave uh, other, other measures of... Uh, it said that at that stage, one, one sila becomes perfected. Um, you know, and that there is no doubt that, that one has uh, full confidence then in the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha. So those are, those are what's called the mirror of the Dharma. Uh, because people would often go to the Buddha and ask about various of the monks and nuns after they had died. You know, oh, what happened to them? What happened to them? What, you know, what stage of enlightenment were they at? 
and the Buddha got tired of answering these questions, it said. So he just said, this, this is the mirror of the Dharma. You know, if, if that had been accomplished, you know, then, then one could safely say, had that experience. Just one last thing. <laughs> and this is uh, one of the things that Saira Upandita has said very often. Uh, and again, I, I, I don't know this for myself, I'm just transmitting it. Uh, he said that really nobody other than a Buddha can say for sure about another person's attainment. You know, and that we can have a sense if we have a good understanding of the path and you know how the path unfolds, we can have a, a, a good sense of what different experiences are. But in terms of absolute confirmation, he said really only a Buddha can tell. The question was that as in doing the metta retreat, uh, she often felt that nature was a source of metta, uh, but then also began to wonder whether the experience was really of being very, uh, that the heart opens in nature, right? And, and so the feeling of metta comes from that. And so what is the relationship between nature and metta and the open heart? Is that... My sense is that it's uh, it's the second. <laughs> that, that's what resonates with me in terms of how very often in nature our hearts do open. They relax, and I and probably you know many or most of you have had that same experience, just being in the stillness and the beauty and uh, the connectedness. You know, we feel in nature that the heart does get very open and less defended. And less neurotic. You know, I, I find it, it... It's just hard to be neurotic in the trees. <laughs> you know, it's, whereas, you know, when we're inside a lot and relating a lot, and just, it's, it's almost as if our neuroses bounce off the walls and back into us again. So there is that. It's, it's kind of a wonderful kind of relaxation and heart opening that takes place. And, and I've also had some of the most meta-filled moments, uh, really being often out in the woods, you know, right back here. The, the, these, I don't know if you've been back in the woods. If you haven't in all this time, even though it's, you know, it might be cold, go out for a walk on the trails. These woods are beautiful, you know, and this, they're very benign, you know. It's just like this great playground of nature. Um, but I wouldn't, I, I, I wouldn't, it seems a little anthropomorphizing to say, for, for me, that nature is the source of matter. You know, because 
you know, Hurricane Katrina comes roaring through. It's, it seems much more impersonal in that way. It's the elements, you know, and they have sometimes beautiful aspects and sometimes very destructive aspects. So I think it's much more how we are, you know, in nature, whether it's heart opening or not. Uh, that's how I. That's how I would understand it. So, what does it mean to have compassion for the conditioned mind? I think it's. It means really compassion for the suffering of the conditioned mind. You know, and when we. I mean, you're all experts. <laughs> you know, there's no way to sit for six weeks or three months. I mean, that's that, even though it, would, it might not be what you bargained for. The great power of the retreat is that we can, cannot avoid seeing just what our minds are doing. You know, and sometimes they're in really wholesome, skillful states, and sometimes they're not. You know, and we see the dukkha, the suffering of so many of the conditioned patterns, you know, of mind. And so the compassion is really just for that suffering. Yeah, there's a lot of suffering here. You know, and the wish, really, the the wish of compassion, whether it's for oneself or others, the very simple wishes. May I or may you be free of suffering? You know, because we feel, and the more we feel the suffering in ourselves, the more compassion we can feel for the suffering in others. And that's why sitting here, it may seem like a very, you know, that all you're doing is, you know, kind of looking at your own mind and your own body. What's the relationship to others? There's a total, totally intimate connection. Because as we change our relationship to the patterns here, it's the same patterns in, every, in everybody else. Uh, you know, and so as we become more compassionate for the suffering you know, that we see and feel, likewise we feel more compassionate for the suffering of other people's conditioned minds. Is that, is that what you had in mind in the question, or was there another aspect to it? Uh-huh. Right, right. Uh, well, you want the very simplest everything, <laughs> because it's everything except nibbana, everything except the unconditioned. So everything, everything in our experience, everything that arises, everything is conditioned, which means. It's coming out of causes. I mean, that's what condition means. It's conditioned by causes. So what is that? That's everything. 
everything that arises out of conditions will also pass away. And so that's why all conditioned things are inherently unreliable. We can't count on any conditioned arising for a lasting happiness precisely because they don't last. And there's nothing within the conditioned realm, that is, things arising out of causes, which is everything that we experience. There's nothing within that that provides a place of ultimate security. Well, compassion is itself a conditioned. Compassion is itself one of the conditioning, but, you know, as we've said over the time, within that conditioned realm, there are skillful states, there are unskillful states, meaning those conditioned states which lead to more suffering, those conditioned states which lead to worldly happiness, to spiritual understanding, to liberation. So different conditioned arisings have different effects. Compassion is one of the conditioned arisings. But it's a skillful one in terms of understanding kind of the suffering that arises. The, and it's not only suffering, it's because that word in English doesn't really capture... It's not that everything is painful. There, there are lots of things that are pleasurable and beautiful and... The word that I like better than, you know, f- as a translation for dukkha <coughs> is ultimately unsatisfying. I mean, you, I'm sure you, in your lives and certainly on retreat, no matter how good the experience is, you know, when you think back on your lives, so we've had probably many really wonderful experiences, you know, of all kinds. And it's not that they're not wonderful or enjoyable or beautiful, but they're ultimately unsatisfying because of their impermanent nature. You know, and so, <laughs> but what's so fascinating about our delusion is that we think, well, the next beautiful experience will really do it, <laughs> even though we've had countless ones already. And so that's why the Buddha is saying, well, there's something other than that, you know, which does have kind of the lasting peace, the, the, the fulfillment. So it's really compassion for that. It's, it's like the compassion of understanding, yeah, this world which was so enmeshed in and keep craving this and that, it's not going to fulfill us. And that's why it's said that what moved the Buddha most after his enlightenment was seeing people wanting happiness and yet doing the very things which just kept them enmeshed in this cycle of samsara, which is all of us. You know, as we want peace, we want freedom, awakening, whatever word you, know, you like to, to use for that. So it's what we want, otherwise you wouldn't be here. And yet, how often in our lives do we keep doing the things, you know, as if the next experience somehow is really going to fulfill us? So this is our challenge. You know, it's especially our challenge as lay people, because those who have kind of renounced the world as monks or nuns, 
there's, there's a great power in that. You know, for whatever reason, we have all chosen to stay as lay people and still with this very strong commitment to the Dharma and to understanding and to freedom. It's not an easy task, you know, because we're, we're surrounded on all sides, you know, with an environment which fosters desire and craving and wanting. You know, and so we have a task ahead of us, you know, but it's, I don't know, I, get, I kind of get inspired by this whole transmission of the Dharma to the West because as far as I know, and I'm not a great scholar of the history of Buddhism, but as far as I know, this is a pretty unique time where, at least in our culture for now, not that it may not change, but for now, the real thrust of Dharma practice in this culture is really being held by lay people. There aren't, you know, the kind of monastic communities, as many of them as obviously in Buddhist countries. So we're, we're carrying something very precious. And it's, it's, I see it as a great experiment. You know, well, is this going to work? You know, can we really do this? Well, not. You know, probably no in a few hundred years. <laughs> um. Mm-hmm. Could everybody hear that? The question was just in, in looking at what has evolved here in terms of this retreat center and the Forest Refuge and uh, the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies and kind of what was the vision behind it and you know what do, what do I see as kind of the potential or where it's leading? Um, It's been very interesting over these last 30 years just to watch the evolution of what's happened here because basically we came back 30 years ago. Many of us had been in Asia. It's like I was 30, 31 years old. I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> you know, but we were inspired by the practice. We had all gotten very inspired in Asia. Uh, in different places, you know, some in Thailand, some uh, in India. 
and in kind of desire to share the, the practice situations that we had, uh, we thought, well, you know, starting a center will be great. Thirty years of board meetings later, <laughs> but that aside, <laughs> I mean, it has been wonderful to, you know, have thirty years. This is the thirty-first three-month course that we've had. You know, so just so many beings coming through, and then after some time of people, you know really getting into the practice and establishing a bigger network of sangha, the thought was, well, we teach the meditation aspect, but there's a whole area of Buddhist studies, you know, that, that is so rich and would so complement uh, the practice. So I think it was back in 89 or somewhere around there that we, that we thought to start a study center where people could go and really devote more time to the study uh, and then it was really about five years ago or six years ago as we were looking at you know, different pieces that, that seemed to be missing. My sense was, and, and this was shared by many others, that there was a whole cadre of people who had done three-month courses, you know, and, and many, many people and, and some of you I've done many three-month courses and felt there was a need for another kind of practice as well where people could go outside of a course structure you know where there would be it would be more independent with some support so as you probably know at the forest refuge there are two talks a week and two interviews a week and then other than that people there's no schedule there's no bells people just settle into their own rhythm of practice and it's very much how I practiced in India. When I first uh, studied with Manindraji, he, there were no courses. I mean, people just came to Bodh Gaya and would find a place to live and to practice, and then they'd just go see him. You know, either every day when he was there, or sometimes there were, there were some gaps. And for myself, I, I had, even though I had a lot of difficulties in practice, I wasn't plagued with doubt, so that wasn't one of my hindrances. And so I just, I just kept going through all the difficulties you've gone through, and I loved it. I just loved that sense of just being immersed in the Dharma, following my own rhythm, you know. And I had enough, um, I guess, commitment and interest. You know, at that time, not to need the structure as support. And so we were just thinking, yeah, it would be great to have a place where people could practice long-term, if they wished, you know, in that kind of way. And my vision, my aspiration is that um, we get a bunch of Buddhas and Arhants and Bodhisattvas or whatever, <laughs> however, one, however one conceptualizes you know, the, the final freedom, the final liberation. Uh, it'll be wonderful, you know, as, as we as a Sangha mature, you know, and that possibility becomes real. And so the, the idea was really just to provide another kind of place for practice which would foster that.
The question was given given the comments about the the lay practice in this country. Do I feel like there's a place for monastic practice here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. So in talking about monastic community, the sense of it being a, a community of committed people over time, not ju- not just coming together for a retreat. I think there's definitely a place, and you know, it's beginning. There there are a few, you know, the disciples of Ajahn Chah and uh, Ajahn Sumedho, you know, have set up some monastic communities both in this country and in really around the world. Uh, and, and that's just kind of the beginning, you know, kind of seeding it. Um, yeah, I think it, it's tremendously powerful, and I think it will happen. You know, because this was not a Buddhist culture, so there wasn't any kind of... From a Nasta community to flourish, you need you need a... Uh, a culture of support, you know, of lay supporters. Of course, in countries like Burma and Thailand and Sri Lanka, there's so much faith, you know, among the people that that support for monasteries is, is you know, it's right there. I think what what is happening now, in part, in addition to our own spiritual development and walking on the path to freedom, it's also the spreading out of understanding of Buddha Dhamma, where that support for monastics you know, will emerge from. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think it's very powerful, you know, and, and hopefully it will happen uh, increasingly. So what, what does what would it look like for people who are interested in the Buddha Dharma, but feel that either they can't really do the meditation practice, or it's not not being effective for them? You know, are there other areas or arenas of practice? Is that is that the question? Right. Yeah. You know, I think um, I can't remember. One of my colleagues talked about basically the the three fields of practice of, of dana, of you know, of the practice of generosity, the practice of sila, and the practice of bhavana, of concentration. Each one of those is so incredibly rich, you know, and deep and profound. Uh, 
some years ago, I, I was teaching in Switzerland, and I was uh, just talking with a friend of mine who was uh, a therapist and working with pretty pretty troubled people. You know, not not just <coughs> ordinary troubled. <laughs> <coughs> and I had this idea, which I suggested to him, and I've suggested to a few people since then. I had this idea. Uh, I, I thought of it as paramita therapy. You know, where the therapy, the therapeutic intervention, would be for people to practice maybe for a month at a time, you know, take the 10 power meters. And so, or, so just taking a month of practicing generosity, you know, and just every opportunity, you know, and really seeing, okay, how can, how can I be generous in this situation, in this situation, in this situation? And then a month practicing sila, a month practicing metta, a month practicing renunciation, you know, and, so at the end of a year, you'd be pretty immersed in, in the Dharma, you know, from all of these different angles. Um, so I think that that's one way. And, and in a way, even though it's not called power meter therapy, I think in many Buddhist cultures, It's sort of in the culture. It's not that everybody is doing it perfectly by any means whatsoever. You know, they have the same defilements that we have. But the framework is there. You know, the framework of values, the framework of understanding what should be cultivated and practiced. And so I think it's just absorbing that and and finding a framework for ourselves. You know, because having it somewhat systematic, I think, is what gives it power. It's the kind of discipline, whether it's the discipline of, of sitting every day or the discipline of, yes, this month I'm going to really cultivate this quality. You know, where we undertake it and there's some structure for us. I think that's of tremendous help, especially in our attention deficit disordered society. <laughs> You know, because it's just, uh, we're so amazingly scattered as a culture, you know. And so just, okay, this is what I'm going to do. So there are many, many areas of practice in addition to meditation that are profound. You know, they're really all life-transforming. So the question was about how in some Buddhist traditions, uh, compassion and emptiness are seen as inextricably 
the, of being aspects of one another, not that compassion is a conditioned response to things, but actually is a part of emptiness. This is a complicated question because need to be very uh, careful in uh, what we mean by the word emptiness in the way that you phrase the question there's a danger of making emptiness into a thing which contains compassion or which of which compassion is a part I don't think that would be the general understanding of emptiness. And and the caution often in the teachings is to not make it into a thing. But rather, it might be better to think of, instead of the noun emptiness, is it a noun, emptiness? (laughs) It's been a long time. But to think of it more as an adjective, you know, that is, things are empty of self, empty of any substantial intrinsic reality, right? And so then, and this is, in a way, it's just a rephrasing, you know, of your question. It would more be that in the realization of that empty nature of all experience in the the, a manifestation of that realization is compassion I think that would be a better way of phrasing it rather than to make compassion as being a component of this thing called emptiness do you see is this clear? Uh, because it is—it's a—it's a, a subtle point, but but is often referred to in the teachings about emptiness. The caution of not reifying it into being a thing. So it—it's more the understanding of the insubstantial nature of everything, and then, as I say, compassion being a manifestation of the realization of that. It's interesting that, in, again, I'm, I'm, not <coughs> I'm not at all, by any stretch of the imagination, a Pali scholar, <laughs> um, but there are a few kind of little key points that jump out at me. that abidamically speaking that the what metta is in terms of a mental factor is the mental factor of non-hatred you know so in the absence of that factor of hatred Meta manifests, and I just I just find that interesting. That that's so. In that way, one could say that meta or compassion, you know, 
is the result of the mind or the manifestation of the mind free of defilements, you know, free of greed, free of hatred, free of ignorance, and these other qualities manifest, you know, quite quite naturally. So that that's that's its tie-in to the realization of emptiness. And of course, as we know, they can also be practiced as a particular relative practice where we practice metta, we practice compassion. But this is another level of it. Yeah, so the the comment from last night, Steve mentioning the value of having somebody to just discuss the practice, and um, it is clearly helpful when when that's possible. Uh, but as was asked, what if you live in an area where there aren't, uh, you know, much Dharma support? And there are a few possibilities. Um, Start a sitting group. Uh huh. Do do you have Dharma discussions? Yeah. Well, I think that's really valuable because um, I sort of I have a lot of. Uh, don't take this as kind of an absolute. <laughs> this is just kind of a general feeling. I have a lot of uh, faith or trust in group wisdom, in the wisdom of a group, and especially of you know a group of Dharma practitioners coming together and discussing. And it's everybody may just have one little piece of something. But as you as you talk in a group, if it's really dialogue in an inquiring way, you know, and really investigating, looking at um, any particular Dharma point, I think a lot of wisdom will emerge from the group, and so I wouldn't undervalue that. One thing, just in in a very practical way, something that a lot of people have found helpful who live in isolated situations. Most of you probably are familiar with this, but some years ago, Sharon and I kind of created this correspondence course, which is a lot of the materials that you've heard during the retreat. It's you know some Dharma talks and instructions, so that part you're very familiar with. But part of the course is that you correspond with uh, an instructor, you know, like there's a year's correspondence that goes along with it, and so people establish contact uh, with an instructor, you know, and report on their experience, and their med- it's like an interview. Um, and so that's a way to get very direct feedback, uh, you know, and guidance. Uh, and the people who, many people who have done that, have just expressed that it's been very, very helpful. So that, that could be a possible avenue. We send them a lot to prisons, uh, and we just got this 
absolutely beautiful letter from a prisoner who just got out. Yeah, and he was just describing the obviously terrible conditions, but just you know, having the Dharma available and the practice available, he said it was just an amazing uh, growth and learning experience for him. And it was just so touching, you know, that in so many different circumstances, even in really difficult circumstances, when there's that interest and commitment, it's like the Dharma works its magic. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it was pretty obvious for quite a long time that the people coming to retreats, that there were very few people of color, you know, coming to retreats. And at a certain point, it's like I, I personally and, and others just got very both interested in trying to understand why that was and seeing what kind of uh, kind of outreach or what we could do to be more inclusive, you know, to to make these teachings which are so precious uh, just really available and accessible to all people. I mean, obviously, the Buddha was a person of color, <laughs> you know, and I practiced in Asia, and uh, and so the it just felt it felt uh, sad to me, you know, that because of the cultural conditions and the the racial divisiveness and discrimination in this country should also be impacting, you know, the spread of the Dharma. Uh, you know, and as you know, it's some years ago, uh, we just started teaching retreats for people of color. Uh, I was first doing it out in New Mexico at Vallecitos and then in the New York area and then uh, this last year here at IMS. And uh, it was really amazing. I mean, it was really amazing to me. And it's, it, it's to be teaching a retreat here, you know, at IMS with 80, 85, 90 people of color here, in contrast to, you know, the usual retreats where there are just a few. And it felt so uh, inspiring to me. Uh, and it's a huge issue because, as you know very well, racial issues in this country are huge, just huge. And, and I feel like just from being involved in those retreats, 
it's just, I have learned so much, you know, and still my understanding of the situation is probably minuscule, you know, but compared to what I knew before, I really feel like, whoa, you know, it's like there's this huge thing going on in our country. And yeah, it's just, it's really big. And we need to look for ways, you know, to break down that divide. Uh, yeah, it's, this is a big thing. This is a really big thing. Uh, the question was about gratitude and why it doesn't seem to be mentioned so much in the teachings. Um, I actually don't know whether it's mentioned a lot because I don't even know the I don't know the Pali word for it. <laughs> you know, and so whether it's included in, for example, metta, you know, or there's there's its own special niche for it. But there is there's some place where the Buddha said, you know, about these two very rare qualities in the world. He he highlighted two qualities uh, which were beautiful and rare. One was now he he talked about two two rare and beautiful kinds of beings. One of whom was that person who was a benefactor to others and the other being a person who is grateful or expresses gratitude you know, for, uh, for that benefit. Uh, and so he, did the, he definitely highlighted that as a very special quality of a being. Kind of extrapolating from that in terms of a little bit of an investigation of that in our own lives, I mean, being a benefactor, I think, is more obvious. But the other side of it, very often people, there can be some strange conditioning around being a recipient, you know, being, being on the receiving end of generosity. I think we all have, you know, more or less easy, even though we have different different degrees of it, of being generous. And often it's easier for us to be generous than to actually receive generosity. So that would be something to look at, because that's really what this question of gratitude is about. You know, is it possible to be open-hearted in the receiving? You know, where we don't have trips about it, whether it's, it could be anything, it could be unworthiness trips, you know, oh, I don't deserve this, or it could be entitlement trips, you know, or why didn't you give me more, <laughs> or whatever. You know, there's, there can be a lot around that. And I think the Buddha is really pointing out kind of the beauty of this reciprocal, of both being a benefactor and being a person who can be grateful and, and I, I hear that as some, just a great simplicity. You know, it's not being neurotic about receiving. 
but we actually just receive with an open heart as well as give with an open heart. You know, because when we receive, we're actually enabling someone else to be generous. You know, if we kind of get caught up in some, some kind of ego trip on the receiving end, we're really cutting off the gift to somebody of being able to be generous. You know, so for me, I think there's, there's a tremendous purification and simplification that can happen. But we need to look. We need to look at our own, you know, ourselves and our own conditioning around this. And out of that simplicity, I think there's, there's just a natural gratitude that happens. You know, it's not... It's, it's, it's gracious. You know, it's not like a... It's not a fawning gratitude. It's just an ease, you know, of this flow of giving and receiving and receiving and giving. And, you know, there's a, there's a tremendous beauty in that. So, I think that could be a good note <laughs> to end on. Uh, why don't we just sit in gratitude for the Dharma? Enjoy this last night of continuous silence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.